Good evening. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to a live pop culture on deep program with Carrie Smith. I am one of your hosts, Carrie Smith, and I'm joined by MC Mystery Chris. Hello, Mr. Chris. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, I saw the news. I figured before we get to the main topic, I mean, everybody saw the news. People in chat are already talking about it. I saw that Johnny Depp won today, beat Amber Heard. Uh, they they said that she defamed him with malice, and I think a lot of people are feeling pretty good about that verdict and feel like it's a good verdict. I know I am. Uh, what do you think about it? Are you I the one would... Amber Heard person? She got all of the money she was asking for, <laughs> and his career would be double ruined. No, uh, I was obviously happy seeing the uh, verdict go his way, mostly. I was a little confused about them awarding her. Two million, which just subtract off the money she owes him. But uh, yeah, it, it's it was nice, not only just like the case, but just seeing other people who are becoming more kind of like black pilled, just like see them like actually kind of be happy and a little optimistic, <laughs> saying, okay, so I guess there is some justice. I know it wasn't a criminal case, but still, a lot of people understood, you know, what was at stake, or or rather, I guess it'd be more of where it'd be a sign of where we're at as a culture, I think. And a lot of yes. people are seeing how, you know, the Me Too stuff is kind of waning down and people are starting to be more critical of it. And so I think people saw this as a, almost a milestone to, to show that, you know, the country hasn't gone completely insane. I think so too. And I think even if the verdict hadn't come down this way, if the jury did not find in his favor, I think he still would have won. Um, and I think he still would have felt good about what he did because he won in the court of public opinion. Mm -hmm. And the reason he was there, and if you read his statement today, he says, I'm paraphrasing, but he says the reason he did this was to speak the truth for his kids, for his friends and family who've been affected, for people who believed in him, to speak that truth. And he said something about he feels like finally at peace, finally at peace having gone through this and been able to say what the truth is. And I know exactly what he's talking about. It's, it, it's that it, it, you can't put a price tag on it. I don't believe for a second it was about the money for him. This was mm -hmm. about clearing his name and saying, no, you're not going to do this to me. Lie about me, invert what happened and, and, and tell people that I'm the monster you are. It, it was his story. Has anyone run with that in their, their title articles? His story instead of her story. You know how many times uh, I've heard that in the last few years. But yeah, it was amazing just to see how many views it was getting. Because I was checking uh, online YouTube, and of course, you know, Rakeda and yeah. lawyers were getting huge numbers. Uh, Law and Crime, Dan Abrams one, uh, that was yeah, like 3 million views on it. Uh, bunch of so many i mean way more people than rittenhouse and uh george floyd chauvin and the george floyd stuff way more than that yeah and i saw brian cannell said something he tweeted something about how get ready for the mainstream to do a bunch of hit pieces on independent content creators now because a lot of a lot of people's channels focused on it we didn't really we talked about it here and there but a lot of people they were like rakeda and they were streaming about it constantly. And he said, get ready for the mainstream to start doing hit pieces because they, they didn't expect this. They didn't expect the public support and they're going to want to blame somebody. So who are they going to blame? 
<laughs> Certainly not themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just have to put this super chat up. Pirate Tomsky's still awake, guys. He's still Pirate. awake and with us. Hello, Pirate. He says, he gives us a 10 pound super chat. Why are you do? You don't have to do this, Pirate. You're the producer. <laughs> <laughs> he says, Carrie, don't say that Johnny Depp beat Ember Turd. <laughs> True. Bad choice. Is there going to be any like pornos? You know how they do like the kind of like porno spoofs or, you know, knock off something. Oh, totally. They always, <laughs> that industry always, if they have an opening to do a gross pun on, you know, I can't think of what the name of one. I mean, it's going to have turd in the title somehow. <laughs> <laughs> they, they have to tie it back into like pirates. They'll or, call him or, or something. They'll call him Johnny Deep instead of Johnny yes. Depp. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there probably is a Johnny. Somebody in the chat said be like, be there already is a Johnny Deep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have it in my private collection. I'm staring at it. Johnny Deep and Amber Turden. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's going to be. Mark my words. And it would actually get a lot of views. Oh, gross. Crazy. It would. <laughs> Uh, Maybe she'll actually be in it. She could use the money. Oh, man. She could use the acting practice, too. <laughs> <laughs> what, acting what? is on par with porn actress. Oh, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I didn't know that much about her acting before the trial. I've probably seen her act more in this than I have in anything else. And it was pretty bad. Um, I think that it, it, it made me think a lot about psychopaths who are instead of going into uh, uh, entertainment, uh, go into politics. And and I now hear me out. Are the psychopaths who go into politics better actors than the psychopaths who become actors? I think they are. <laughs> like, look at Justin Trudeau, for example. I think he's psychopathic. I think the way he behaves is, is a lot like Amber Heard. When he uh, put on that black face, I was like, that guy is an African-American. If I've ever seen one. <laughs> you fell for it? You yeah. Me. I was like, oh, you got me. You're good. You are good, sir. Yeah. I think he's a very good actor. And if you watch <laughs> him when he's emoting, I watched his part of his recent speech about uh, gun control. And he he just he plays it so smooth. They just, they're so polished. It's so... It's so much like, uh, uh, like that. Oh, I said this. I was on Comics Division show on Monday, and he played. That's where I saw it. He played a clip, and it made me think of the um, restaurant scene in American Psycho. Christian Bale playing Patrick Bateman. Do you remember that scene? Uh, yes. So, for anyone who hasn't seen that movie, I highly recommend it. Although there there is violence and there's murder, and if you don't like those kind of movies, I'm just warning you. He's a psychopath who has like a lot of them do, they have this public mask that they wear. Um, and some of them are better at it than others. I'm starting to think the politicians are very good at it. <laughs> and there's this scene where he's at a restaurant and you can see him with the mask on, the it, trying to fit in and be a normal human. And they're offering opinions on what's going on in the world. And he just delivers this sort of scripted speech about what he thinks about all the current events. And it's so awkward it's one of those things where you can't quite put your finger on it but your spidey sense is like something's off with this guy right like 
Which makes you wonder, like, why aren't there more people who can see through, say, Kamala or the, the Chicago mayor, Lightfoot? who's not even good actress. Like, neither of them are actually good. There are some sociopaths that are very good. They're not. It's obvious. You can take a look, especially at Mayor Beetlejuice. You can take a look at her. Say, right? that woman is crazy. Look at her hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she got crazy hair and crazy eyes. Right. Double, double crazy. Some are better than others. Chadeau's definitely better than Lightfoot, but I don't mm -hmm. know. They do a good job of hiding it. A lot of them, the politicians do, I think, better than some of the actors. Um, but I think okay. like a lot of them who are so used to not getting a, a lot of criticism, like it's, the mask starts to slip and they start to, to mm -hmm. you know, slip out because that happens to a lot of people in various aspects of life. You know, you get comfortable doing something and, you know, the moment you stop doing it or forget in the moment, that's when something bad happens. And so I think a lot of them, you know, so used to not getting caught for various things, whether yes. it's just being a sociopath or just doing really bad things like, you know, just Lane, Gisley, Maxwell and Epstein, you know, I'm sure they never thought they were actually going to get caught. And so it's very easy to start to slip up and, you know, not take the same precautions you would earlier when you get so arrogant. And so I think you're kind of seeing mass slip off with so many of them because the media just won't hold them accountable. You're right. And when the mass starts to slip, like it did with Amber Heard, when people aren't believing anymore, then uh, there's, well, if you read the psychiatric literature, what they say about people with personality disorders is, is there's this period they go through when the mask is slipping called de decompensation. And that's where their usual tactics aren't working anymore and people are starting to see through it, but they don't know any other way. And so uh, it seems odd to, to us wa watching it, but they just double down on those tactics. So mm -hmm. if they're being called out for lying, they lie more. Um, if they're being called out for defaming people, they defame more or, you know, so I think that was heard is like, she had nowhere to go except to continue to do the same thing she had been doing even though it wasn't working. And one of the, for anybody who didn't watch the trial footage, one of the most telling things she did, in my opinion, aside from the fake crying and the, the, the fake emotion was she would turn and look at the jury all the time, looking for validation. She's like scanning each of them as she's talking. And I don't mean in the way that uh, when you're delivering a speech or something, uh, you're supposed to have eye contact with the, individual people like and, and i've been given criticism i need to do that better like look up engage with the crowd instead of being all nerves you know not that it's not it's not that like connecting with a few people she's literally scanning each person's face almost as if to see if they're buying it like she's mm -hmm. and it was constant it was every time she talked you know um it's very bizarre and you know i did listen to a little bit of uh what are Kata streams and i know he and some other lawyers were saying that sometimes people are instructed by their lawyers to look at the jury but to me this went too far like it was too much like it's very kind of unsettling just like the it, it just seemed too intent on trying to you know make some kind of emotional connection with the the jurors by looking them in the eyes while she's saying her lies it just yeah. it was unnerving yeah one of the behavior channels I watched said that sometimes we think that a person not making eye contact is indicative of lying when actually sometimes it's the opposite. Like they, they, well, for the ones who don't have natural uh, emotional empathy, 
it's the opposite because they learn certain things. They learn to make eye contact. So they're more believable and they make it, they make it too much <laughs> like she was doing. It's like over the top. Uh, there's one other thing she did. I know we're not, this isn't our topic tonight, but this just fascinates me. Do you guys in the chat remember the one that everybody was making fun of where she said, I stepped on a bee, my dog stepped on a bee. Did you see that one? No, I don't think so. Okay. There's a clip where she's describing something that happened in this uh, trailer that they were, they were at vacationing at. And she says that Johnny Depp destroyed the trailer and it was, and they had to go get the manager and the manager looked around and said, Oh my gosh. And then Johnny charmed him because he's a powerful man who charms people. And then it was okay. And then they started to leave and then her dog stepped on a bee. And the people were making fun of the dog stepped on a bee part. But what's <laughs> <laughs> I know. But what's interesting about that, if you break it down and you and you and you feel like there's something off about this, right? Um, but what was interesting, first of all, the the manager that she's talking about testified and said, no, that didn't happen. Uh, but <laughs> But uh, when she's describing it, she does this weird thing where she's describing, you know, she's kind of doing the fake emotion, looking at the jury and he had wrecked the whole trailer. And and then she says, and then the, the manager came and I remember he was wearing, it was like a mesh top. Well, it was mesh, but it was this. And she's going on and on about what the hotel manager was wearing. And it seems weird if you're watching it, like, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> and she's doing that because she's trying to add in superfluous details to build her credibility where it's like, well, if she remembers the mesh top, then this clearly happened. Right. Like, right. but, but a normal person wouldn't, wouldn't bring up the top he was wearing. Cause it doesn't have anything to do with the story. If you were in a trailer and your boyfriend or husband just destroyed it and the hotel manager came when you're recounting the story, you wouldn't be like, you know, and then, uh, oh, he was wearing a mesh. It was a mesh top, but it looked like the. No, that has nothing to do with the story. <laughs> it sounds like a ninth grader taking creative writing class yeah. for the first time. <laughs> it's like, let me just yes. put a bunch of adjectives in here. It really adds nothing to the story, but. It's superfluous details. And sometimes, if you watch any uh, true crime stuff where you see the cops interviewing a guilty person, they'll do that. They'll add in all these superfluous details, t talking too much. Uh, about things that aren't related, you know, to try and establish psychologically, they, it's like they, they're trying to establish that they're credible because they remember these details that have nothing to do with this. I, I would love to see somebody on the stand that when they're remembering details, like they keep bringing up like seeing black people. They're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, anybody of any other race there? I, I, I don't know. Maybe he's black. I know they're black. Oh, there's another black guy too. What does that have to do with it? Yeah. I just saw a black person there. <laughs> obsessed with black people. So Pirate says, since I was talking about that restaurant scene, that I should play it. I'm going to play it. If if you haven't, if you don't recall this scene, let's see if this works. This is the restaurant scene in American Psycho, and this this is the scene I'm talking about that kind of reminds me of a. Uh, Gavin Gavin Newsom and Justin Trudeau, <laughs> both of them. <laughs> Adam says, "Was the B black?" <laughs> okay, boom. There we go. Can you see that? Yep. 
Sri Lanka, honey. Doesn't that affect us too? I mean, do you know anything about? Can you hear that? How, like, yes. Like, tons of Israelis over there. Come on, Bryce. There are a lot more important problems in Sri Lanka to worry about. Like what? Well, we have to end apartheid for one, and slow down the nuclear arms race, stop terrorism, and world hunger. We have to provide food and shelter for the homeless. And oppose racial discrimination and promote civil rights <laughs> while also promoting equal rights for women. We have to <laughs> to traditional moral values. Most importantly, we have to promote general social concern. Less materialism. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yep, it's definitely new somehow. If it's, if somebody talked like that at a restaurant with you, check even please. What... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you scripting mine says Gavin Newsom. Yes, Gavin Newsom. <laughs> it's not that if if you take the con content of what he's saying, okay, those are all reasonable opinions to have. You may not agree with those opinions, but they're reasonable opinions. It's not that. It's the way he says it. It's like a script. It's so off. It's that thing where your gut says, hey, there's something a little weird here. Like, is this guy <laughs> trying to eat me? <laughs> this guy's trying to eat me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, disturbing. Disturbing. So what else? We've talked about this is not a Johnny Depp Amber Heard show. I just thought that was worth talking about at the beginning. But what have you been? What entertainment have you been consuming? Uh, I've watched movies this weekend. Um, I finally watched Black Widow, uh, the Marvel movie, which is terrible. It's like a poor man's um, Captain America Winter Soldier. It was not good. And then I was like, oh, okay, let me watch something more fun and festive. So I watched the new Chippendale Rescue Rangers movie. That sucked, too. Like That's just a poor man's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And I had to watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit right after it to get the taste out of my mouth to see how you're supposed to do the mix of cartoons and human beings. And so uh, I, after I watched it, I did some uh, research. I always like to see what the ratings are, movies I watch, even if they're really old, after I watch them. And I found an interesting article. And uh, if you can pull it up, I sent you, if you can click the link that says Chippendale. So what is this called again? Chippendale's what? Chippendale Rescue Rangers. So it's based on the kind of, I think it was late 80s, early 90s cartoon, Disney Afternoon, about the two chipmunks that are detectives. And okay. as part of Disney Afternoon, like, you know, it aired after DuckTales and, you know, gummy bears and that stuff. And I was never like a huge fan of it back when it aired, but I just love the theme song, like, the theme song is so nostalgic for me that it almost makes me want to cry. <laughs> like, <laughs> just... Oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, okay, so here in this movie, uh, th there's a little controversy. So apparently the, the bad guy in the film is a washed-up Peter Pan. So he's like an old guy. He's like uh, middle-aged. He's fat, balding, he's, and he's trying to still wear the Peter Pan costume. Well... Disney I hated is an old guy, Peter Pan. <laughs> Sorry, <go> <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so Disney's under fire. I know you're laughing because you know who that is. Okay, go ahead. I know, I know. I was like, hmm, hmm. Yeah, I won't say anymore. But uh, so uh, 
Disney's under fire because Peter Pan that they did in this movie is remarkably similar to the story of a guy who played Peter Pan when he was like 13 for Disney. I think it was either 50s or 60s. And apparently this guy was fired from Disney because, you know, he was had acne or he's going to puberty or something. And he ended up developing, he had some mental issues and ended up like dying. Like they found his body like years later. You know, I think he died early thirties or so. And so people were thinking that Disney did this to mock him by putting this cartoon character of a washed up Peter Pan who, you know, got kicked off of oh, wow. this thing. And so I, I'm like, hmm, I <laughs> like I just Disney. It's not like they, they have very many moral principles. So I mean, the writers of the, the film said they didn't know, but I'm like, it's a hell of a coincidence if they didn't. This is a Decider article. The headline is for mocking original Peter Pan child star, child star Bobby Driscoll, who turned to heroin and died penniless after being dumped by Disney. Oh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers is under fire for this, it says. Yeah. Um, Despite the links they go to in order to protect their wholesome image, it's no secret that Disney has a dark side. But Bobby Driscoll, who was the voice and the animation model for the studio's 1953 animated classic Peter Pan, had an experience with the company that was particularly bleak. As a child, starting at the age of 10, he was one of the first child actors to land a Disney contract. In addition to Peter Pan, he also had roles in Song of the South, So Dear to My Heart, Treasure Island, he even won an Oscar, a Special Academy Juvenile Award. For those years, Driscoll was Disney's sweetheart. But then, unlike his forever young character, Driscoll grew up, and Disney dropped him like yesterday's trash. Some say a severe case of puberty-induced acne prompted Disney to sever its contract with Driscoll in 1953. According to biographer Mark Elliott, who wrote about Driscoll in his 1993 book, Walt Disney, Hollywood's Dark Prince, it was more due to the general hatred of child actors from RKO head Howard Hughes. In an interview with Entertainment Weekly, Elliott said, quote, when Howard Hughes bought RKO, he in effect became the owner of the Disney studio. He controlled the money and he hated Bobby Driscoll. He hated Hollywood kids. He thought they were precocious, weren't real, and were incredibly annoying. <laughs> He didn't want Bobby Driscoll to be with Disney anymore. Whatever the reason, Driscoll was suddenly and rudely dropped from Disney when he was 16 years old and reportedly was even banned from re-entering the studio. That same year, Driscoll moved out of his parents' house to New York City to study acting. It didn't go well. Despite some TV roles, Driscoll never recovered from his traumatic experience as a child actor. In a 1961 magazine article titled The Nightmare Life of an Ex-Child Star, an adult Driscoll wrote, quote, I was lonely most of the time. A child actor's childhood is not a normal one. People continually saying, what a cute little boy creates innate conceit. But the adulation is only one part of it. Other kids prove themselves once, but I had to prove myself twice with everyone. In that same article, Driscoll describes his marriage dissolving and becoming virtually homeless. Four years later, 31-year-old Driscoll was found dead on a New York City park bench surrounded by beer bottles. Oh, this is so sad. Um... That's an inappropriate commercial. Jeez. Yeah. Was that a beer commercial? <laughs> he died from hardened arteries, a side effect of heroin use. His own mother didn't know he had died until a year and a half after he was found. 
and the public wasn't alerted to his death until the re-release of Song of the South in 1972. Uh, well, whether or not they purpose, I think it's possible they did not purposefully mean to mock him. You know, it it it's entirely possible they that wasn't their intention. They're just making fun of Peter Pan. Yeah. But uh, regardless, this is a. I would I would want to see a, a docudrama about this guy. I'd want to mm-hmm. know about. I never heard of this guy. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, that's pretty weird. But yeah, the movie, uh, not something I really recommend. Although a lot of people have been liking it because it has a ton of references, like tons of other cartoons, ones that aren't even owned by Disney are in it. And I think people like that, you know, and I can see how if you're a kid, you could like that, but mm-hmm. there's really just wasn't that much the story. And it's very surprising that it wasn't written better given that, you know, John Mulaney did one of the voices and he used to be a writer at Saturday Night Live. John but, Mulaney. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, but yeah, I just needed to bring that up. Um, well, I, I didn't even, oh, somebody says, sorry, I saw this. I can't believe Carrie does not remember the show. She must be like much younger than I. I was 11 when that show was on. If you're talking about Chip and Dale, I do remember it. I just don't have nostalgia for it. It wasn't something I watched regularly. Mostly, I rem- I get them confused with the chipmunks. And when when you said you watched a movie with Chip and Dale, something I was thinking of the Chip and Dale dancers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they actually do a joke in the movie about that. Do they? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's low hanging fruit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. So, did you watch anything that you liked? Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Uh, yeah, I watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and uh, I think that was it. I think that was all the shows I watched, other than the Dateline stuff. <laughs> Dateline. Yeah, all, all those murder. The murder oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I've been watching. Well, so here's a little peek into. I tend to go through with any kind of entertainment. I don't know if you would call it binging or, but I'll be stuck. Like if I find a new album I like, I just listen to that album and repeat forever or a new song. And with podcasts, I do the same. I'll be on one for months and then be like, okay, time to listen to a different one. Um, and so with entertainment, I go, th- I, th- I go through these cycles of what I'm watching. And two things I've watched recently. One, I would highly recommend on Netflix. I talked about this before when the first season came out, but it's back with a, a new season. It's called Love on the Spectrum. And it's, it's a docuseries that follows autistic people as they are trying to date and find love, find their partner in life. And it's so beautiful and funny it's so funny and sad and just it's everything and it's not it's not a reality show i put that in quotes because most reality shows are scripted and they're just they're bs and they're high drama and some of those can be entertaining it's not that it's not a scripted make-believe drama fest it's an actual documentary it's a docuseries and i'll just tell you like some of the funny moments i'm not going to spoil too much but you know autism is a spectrum and there's uh, people who are featured in this season who are at different levels of being able to function socially very well and pick up on social cues. Uh, And a lot of times autistic people will take things that you, that other people say uh, completely literally. And there's 
there there were so many funny moments like that in the first season. But in the second season, there's one of those moments where this this guy and girl, both autistic, they're on a date. They both like lions and they're out. He takes her to this uh, big cat sanctuary and they're looking at the lions and she's so excited. And then he's telling her he, he would love to visit Africa. Maybe they could go to Africa together one day. She says, yes, you know, and, th and then he said, wouldn't you be so excited? Wouldn't your heart be beating? And she said, just matter of factly, like, yes, my heart would be beating. My heart always beats. Otherwise, I wouldn't be alive. And <laughs> it's just like that kind of it, it just cracks you up because it's just on uh, taking everything at face value. And it's just just lovely. And there's one other character. One last thing that was that cracked me up. There's this character, this uh this Indian guy and he's never dated before and he lives with his parents and he's very gifted when it comes to numbers. So they can tell him it. They'll say, uh, uh, can you, what's 24 times a thousand and 12. And he's like that, he knows the answer. Or he has a, he has a memory like it, like an encyclopedia for dates. And so they'll ask him, do you remember January 4th, 1992? What day of the week was that? And he's like Wednesday or whatever the day is like, he knows what day of the week it was and they give him a few dates and he just catalog right he knows but he's very socially inept and awkward and they they have to do a lot of coaching with him on niceties like when you're at a restaurant with your date you say thank you to the waiter when he brings the food you do and he forgets and they have to remind him to do these things um and so there's this funny part where it's his birthday and his mom is giving a speech about how far he's come in life and how much he's accomplished that they were told he would never accomplish. And it's a touching speech. And he's standing there and she's still talking and he goes, when will you be done talking? <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, that's not spoiling too much. It's just, it's just those moments. It's, it's funny. It's not laughing at someone. It's laughing with like just how innocent and awkward and everyone in these families just like kind of rolls with the awkwardness. And anyway, I really like that show. I'm sure people are demanding it be canceled anyway. So probably, <laughs> probably finding a problem with it. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I've been watching is we do overlap with true crime. Sometimes you and I, there's a YouTube channel I just discovered, it's been around for a while, called The Disturbing Truth. And I've never seen a true crime channel so well produced. This guy should, it's its television quality. It's better than all the, the shows on TV. He he has original or music that he, he goes out and gets permission to use. He does amazing editing. Uh, he really lays out the stories in a, in a narrative that's compelling. And then he also sometimes books interviews with uh, forensic psychologists and other experts at the end to talk about some of the issues that were raised with each case. And he's got an incredible voice like yours, you know, that's just great for listening to. So that I've been watching that show. Now that I don't recommend for everyone because it's pretty freaking gruesome. In fact, Anthony, Anthony won't let me tell him the details of the cases because he's like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I watched it. Disturbing truth, man. Disturbing truth. I will tell you one disturbing thing. Is that okay? How does the chat feel? <laughs> I need to put a poll up. <laughs> How do you feel? 
I won't tell you all the, I won't tell you all the gory details, but this really, I just found this out through watching this channel. I blew my mind. Do you remember in 2008, that crazy guy who killed a fellow passenger on a Greyhound bus and was all over the news? It was in Canada. I think so. Unless I'm confusing it with another time someone got almost decapitated on a bus. Okay, I didn't say decapitated, but that's what happened. He he killed this passenger, freaked out. Nothing nothing out of the ordinary until he did this. The guy hadn't even had only smiled at him and said hello. Killed him, decapitated him. More gruesome, more gruesome things than that. And uh, I just always assumed that guy went away for life. You know, I didn't follow what happened with that guy. His name was Vince Lee. Didn't follow the case. This guy covered it. And you won't believe this. They let him out. Canada let him out. A free man in 2017. He's been walking around for five years. Doesn't have to check in. Doesn't have any kind of parole officer. No accountability for if he's taking his meds or not. They said... Yeah, he was found um, not guilty by reason of insanity, or however they phrase that in Canada, it was something similar to that. And instead of going to jail, he went to a mental health facility. And after only, they said, well, he has schizophrenia. And uh, after only a year and a half of being at that hospital, they started letting him out for supervised trips out into the public. And then after like another year and a half, they started letting him go on unsupervised trips oh. out, outdoors. Uh, yep. Then they moved him into a halfway house where nobody was checking on his coming and going. All they did was monitor his medication when he was at the halfway house. Then they let him 2017, full release, full release. Gave him a new name even, gave him a new identity. So if he's living next to you, you'd be less likely to know that that's the guy who decapitated a stranger on a bus. So, yeah. so another reason to leave Canada if you live in Canada. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody says it's not my fault. I don't control Canada. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not that that stuff doesn't happen here in the States, too. And the system, I think the system's broken. There's all this discussion lately about mental health. And and I think I think we need more attention paid to mental health. But uh, I think there's something really wrong when you can commit a, a murder, a heinous murder like that, and there's no doubt that you did it, and, and all these people on the bus witnessed it. Children witnessed that, forever traumatized, right? And then, oh, well, he's, he's okay now. He's well. Let's let him out. It, even if you have, even if you have a mental health issue, there are countless people who have mental health issues who don't murder people. And and once you cross that line, I think that's you've crossed that line. You don't get to mingle in the public anymore. You can't be trusted. There is no you're all better from that now, in my opinion. So whatever. Ugh. I don't like taking public transportation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh I I hesitated. I always that always stuck that case always stuck in my mind. But I took a Greyhound once after that, and the whole time I was like, mm. <laughs> who are these people put some like metal stuff around my neck so there we go so after that dark tale what are we talking about tonight <laughs> well <laughs> sorry 
<laughs> I thought we could talk about fake news, but the intentional fake news, which still gets perceived as being legit news. So uh, I, like I'm sure a lot of people listening, and probably you, Carrie, uh, love The Daily Show back when it first came out, or I should say when John Stewart took over, because who was watching with Craig Kilborn? Nobody was. Oh, I forgot about Craig Kilborn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember how influential The Daily Show was on my views on politics and even the humor to an extent. And it got me thinking, thinking about this uh, topic about all the different types of satire that influence me, influence society, and what happened to that satire over the past few years, how much of it just became actual news, but how much of it ceased satirizing you know, politicians and culture in terms of pointing out the hypocrisies and absurdities of, you know, the way people behave or certain beliefs or whatever, which a lot of it just became just promoting the narrative, you know, the the mainstream establishment narratives that exist and how all the late night comedians, the talk show hosts, as you have in the um, in our thumbnail for this show, how many of them were at one point or one time funny. And a lot of them, you know, sometimes wasn't always like smart comedy, but other ones still at, you know, despite having some obvious bias, like say a Stephen Colbert, still managed to make some good points and, and were able to expose a lot of that hypocrisy and absurdity. But now he, just like pretty much all of them, are just pro-establishment. And they, you know, as a common theme on this show, where we talk about how a lot of people or, or art forms or movements were once considered a bit avant-garde or, or, or you know, counterculture now are the mainstream culture. And mm -hmm. I think that's unfortunately what's happened to a lot of the TV shows that, you know, did such a great job of satirizing, you know, our culture. Saturday Night Live Weekend Update used to do a good job. And listen, I'm not going to say like Michael Che and Colin Joe start funny. They're still some funny stuff, but I have a hard time watching it because I, I know that so much of what they're saying is not true and that a lot of people are taking it as true because I think they actually think it's true. Mm -hmm. so like the whole Russia gate stuff, you know, when Colbert was going on a rant saying that Trump was, you know, Putin's penis holster. That's a nice way of saying it. It's like that stuff was not true. And you would think even if they at that time believed that, that they would go back and really examine that what happened and, and you know, really critique the media, which is what John Stewart and Colbert are really known used to do that anymore. Yeah, they used. I think you're right. And I wonder if people agree or disagree, but. I think they used to be funny. Like you said, all the people, most of the people in that thumbnail were funny at one point. And specifically when they satirize the news and they're doing a comedy show from behind a desk, like Colbert used to do the Colbert report on the daily show. Um, they're mocking, they're critiquing the establishment media. And that's when they're the funniest. And what's happened over time is they, they've gotten away from, from 
critiquing the establishment and now they just try and bolster the establishment like put up the same talking points but try and make them funny but some some i i almost wonder like how sincere were they in their efforts early on to kind of critique the media in general because you know in preparation for the show i watched a lot of clips of uh old daily show stuff from like the early 2000s and you know the rack war 2004 2012 trying to get a sense of you know what john stewart's philosophy was and what he believed that the show was i even watched the infamous um interview he did with C tucker carlson on uh, crossfire back when tucker was a boomer con and he was on cnn and he was just espousing the typical talking points even though tucker's changed and now critiques and criticizes neocons but back then he was you know drinking the kool-aid and putting out the same stuff and so i i wonder if kind of like with free speech in general, just how many of the people like John Stewart or Colbert truly were interested in trying to bring back integrity to the media through their, their criticisms and their critiques versus how much of it was truly just targeted towards Fox News for ideological reasons while mm -hmm. also critiquing MSNBC, CNN, and the other ones, but really going hard at Fox News, because I find so much of what Stewart and Colbert, so many other talk about, Saturday Night Live even, I find a lot of what they're saying about Fox News right now is the same as what they're saying back then. You know, back then, it was my opinion back then, and I still kind of think this now, of, of back then, Fox News, I thought, was more hyperbolic than the other station mm -hmm. at that time. And so mm -hmm. I could understand, you know, emphasis on that but now when we're in a world where you have people protecting you know groomers and people just openly lying and gaslighting us by showing pictures of minneapolis's or minneapolis on fire while saying this is a mostly peaceful yeah. place, like it's gotten so much worse than their critiques of what fox was and i'm not a fox defender i'm not i don't watch fox other than a handful of like tucker stuff but I, I, I genuinely think that it's worse now as a whole. And I don't see either of them or really any of these other comedians really criticize the media in the same way that they kind of presented themselves as doing in the past. Like, I don't know if you've, if I don't, it, it would if, be the easiest thing and the, and the most sensical thing for them to make a mockery of the media, which is what they're doing when they're satir satirizing the news, when they're pretending to be a news host, right, but doing comedy instead, it would be the easiest thing to make a mockery of when the news gets it wrong, like saying that there's this fire behind me and it's a mostly peaceful protest. But they don't do it. They don't. They don't go after those opportunities. They're completely blinded. It's like they have blinders on. And they're only there to reinforce the mainstream narrative, to reinforce the guy who's saying this is a mostly peaceful protest. Right. Well, because, you know, in the original, or I should say, when John Stewart first took over, uh, early on, you know, he's putting a great deal of emphasis on civil discourse, which is admirable. You know, his bias was obvious and he wasn't really denying, although he would kind of deflect criticisms of The Daily Show um, where people are saying that, you know, they are biased and everything. We say, well, we're an entertainment show. We're not a news mm -hmm. program. But the thing is, they still have that effect. Like, yeah. it became obvious. And, 
you know, maybe in just a moment I can pull up an article. But um, back then, and I'm sure still now, obviously now, there's a lot of people whose main source of information was coming from, you know, The Daily Show. You know, I, I even, <laughs> I use this term called John Stewart Democrats, who was like mm -hmm. people who, in my view, were high school or college age around the time that the Iraq war happened, whose political views were heavily influenced by the Daily yeah. Show, by um, uh, Michael Moore, by Bill Maher, and a lot of them who still think the same way. Like, even though that was nearly 20 years ago, they still want to think that, you know, Fox News is the bad, the worst, that, you know, Christian evangelicals teaching creationism is what we have to stop, not, you know, people teaching CRT and, you know, yeah. sex stuff to kids and things like that. Because, you know, when they're I- They're still stuck in that. They're still stuck in the 90s. But that's the thing, because when I look at, back at the, the Daily Show and stuff, I see a lot of them- when they were making fun of Fox News and a lot of Republicans, they were exposing a lot of hypocrisy of it. But I think a lot of what they were doing was still reinforcing the caricature of what people considered conservatism to be, because there's a difference between conservatism and Republicans, because there's a lot of rhinos, a lot of neocons, a lot of people who are, you know, cloak themselves in the American flag and, you know, the cross and all these other things. And I think a lot of people within the Republican base became more aware of this. And that's what led to the more populist type support for, for Trump. Mm -hmm. But when I look at the old Daily Show stuff, it I don't see that nuance really coming through, yeah. through the stuff. Because like they would do the interview section where a pre-taped interview or more than one of the correspondents would interview someone. And it was obvious that they edited things to make things funny, but mm -hmm. still typical, typically things were edited in a way that just reinforced what many people watching already believed about that. Because I remember at the time, years ago, back when uh, Peter Schiff had a show, uh, he went on The Daily Show and did one of those pre-taped things. And I remember listening to one of his shows where he's talking about how they edit his interview and took certain answers and made it seem like he was like the typical, you know, view of Republicans that, you know, they don't care about poor people and, you know, black people and stuff. And he was like very annoyed, like he knew he, what he was getting into, but still annoyed that they still went through with that. And that kind of became a big problem I had with The Daily Show because a lot of people, even though a lot of people understand that it's being edited, and uh, to a degree to make it funny is still done in a way that just reinforces those preconceived, you know, notions of those, right. those and that's something I had. And so as I've grown, my understanding of, you know, these ideologies has become a lot more nuanced, even though I don't consider myself a conservative, my understanding of it has greatly uh, changed. And I just, I didn't see that back then. And certainly as hell don't see that now. And it's gotten to the point now where Jon Stewart has just gone full woke. Yeah. That makes me question, like, was he ever really, quote unquote, liberal? Is that my thing? Or was he always kind of, you know, a little bit further to the left than maybe what a lot of us maybe thought of at the time? It's hard to gauge because some of them are, they're just like, they're just like people, celebs, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's like uh, articles and never mind. Um, but they are just like people in that I know and we all know people 
in our personal lives who've become more woke now that the culture, now that we've we've entered so many of these acceleration points where the ideology has become ramped up and infiltrated so many of our institutions. And we we all know people who've just doubled down and gone full on woke to the point where we've learned things about people in our lives that it's like, I didn't know that you would be of that character. Like, all right, I didn't realize that you would be so blind um, and be the type who just goes along with the narrative, even when the narrative is upside down. And so some of them, I think they're just like people and the same thing is happening to them and they are in an echo chamber. They're in a social environment. If they're a fish, the sea that they are in is a social justice sea in entertainment. Um, it's become full on woke. And so they've all kind of, a lot of them have just gone down that path, just like people that we know in our everyday lives. But then on the other hand, it is hard to judge sometimes because you don't know how much of how, how in what's the word I'm looking for? How conscious have they ever been? Mm -hmm. Right. Some, sometimes people are just playing a role and they're just, uh, they may think they hold opinions or beliefs, but they're just kind of speaking, well, this is what I need to do to get a show or this is what I need to do. And, and they don't care so much and they're willing to align with anything to get that, that what their primary motivation is, which might be uh, power, money, fame, right? And and so I don't know. I don't. I've never. Uh, when I worked in entertainment, I never interacted with John Stewart. I've never heard anything about him that I recall. Um, but I did think for a while there, just as an observer, it seemed like he was becoming a little more open to questioning things during mm -hmm. the COVID, the COVID yeah. years. Because there, there are times when he says things that I'm like, okay, that's that's pretty good, John Stewart. That's pretty fair assessment. But then he just goes back to saying something stupid. Because he recently, not too long ago, said something about, um, I think it was freedom of speech he was defending, which I was like, okay, good, good, John Stewart. But right before that, he had said something regarding um, one of the lockdown measures. And he was saying that, you know, freedom required you to, like, give up certain I don't know, rights or something, you know, he's making this pragmatic argument for mask and mm -mm. dates of all sorts. And I, that infuriated me. It made me so angry because my idea of him was more of a more principled liberal, but when yes. I see him taking this more, what he, I, I would assume, believe be more pragmatic approach to it without learning about, all the things that we've been lied to about all these years. He is someone who's covered the media, seen the sensationalism, that seen uh, um, hyperbole, seen the outright lies. Why would he not take a more uh, questioned approach, uh, a more skeptical approach to the things that were they're reporting rather than just accept it? Yeah. It's value simply because so many other people are saying it. Yeah, why not take a critical view? He did. He was starting to look like a critical thinker until this new show, which is just thoroughly white people are bad. We are oppressors. It's just all the old recycled stuff that also read the room. I mean, I don't think I'm wrong when I say that woke is on the out. I mean, I know it doesn't seem like it because they still control so much and it's still it's still so heavily embedded in all of our institutions. But in, in terms of the the common man, or a popular culture, people are getting sick of woke. Even woke people are getting sick of woke. 
<laughs> and so you're not on the cutting edge. It's like you're late to the party, John Stewart. You're coming out with a woke show in 2022, right? Like <laughs> behind the curve. You could be playing catch up in a few years and doing anti-woke stuff five years after there have been some breakthroughs that are anti-woke, you know? Uh, it's be a good time to bring up an article. Pirate, if you be so kind and pull up the article, it says Daily Show Salon. Uh, this is an article on salon.com, and I know it's salon, but there's some good things, even though they're super biased in it, but it's to be expected. While he's pulling that up, uh, I just wanted to read the super chat. Thank Muffin, you. thank you. $2 Super Chat says, I just want to say, I love your shows, Carrie. Well, thank you, Muffin. Thanks for watching and hanging out with us. And that reminds me, I'm really bad at remembering the announcements at the top of the show. Uh, we do have a subscribe star and a locals and a Patreon. And if you would like to support the show financially and you're able to do so, you can do it any of those platforms. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Okay. All right. So I'm going to read a little bit of the salon article it goes in 2004 former fox news pundit bill o'reilly kept calling viewers of the daily show with john stewart stone slackers he even repeated the epithet to stewart's face when stewart appeared as a guest on o'reilly's show in september of that year you know what's really frightening o'reilly said you actually have an influence on this presidential election that is scary, but it's true. You've got stone slackers watching your dopey show. <laughs> 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 oh, I detest Bill O'Reilly. What is that? He's Me funny. too. <laughs> uh, in 2004, John Kerry was running against George W. Bush. So we know that The Daily Show didn't change the outcome of that election. But we do know that by 2004, the show had already begun to permanently change the role of political satire in the United uh, States. In fact, in the face of the O'Reilly insults, executives at Comedy Central decided to ask Nielsen Media Research check on whether or not O'Reilly was right in de demon demoning, demeaning. The, demeaning yeah, the audience of The Daily Show. Rather than confirm O'Reilly's insult of Stewart's viewers, they found the opposite. Far from being slackers, viewers of Jon Stewart's show were more likely to have completed four years of college than those who watched O'Reilly Factor. Wait, hold on a second. Yeah. I just want to say something. Uh, those two things are not mutually exclusive. There are many stoned slackers who finished four years of college, right. and there are many hardworking people who don't do drugs who have not gone to college. <laughs> so you ask the wrong questions in your study, first of all. You don't need to ask... Did you did you do four years of college? Okay, then you're not a stone slacker. No, you just need to say, are you stoned <laughs> right now? <laughs> and so on. Expect it. Uh, so let's see. Uh, this was the only beginning of research that showed the positive and powerful impact of The Daily Show on political informed, engaged, and savvy qualities of its audience. This week marks the 25th anniversary of The Daily Show. This article was uh, published last year which launched on July 22nd, 1996. The first host was Craig Kilborn. Ooh, um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who held the spot for two years before John Stewart took over and turned the show towards more political satire. Stewart hosted for 16 years, and it is during his tenure that he not only redefined the show, but also redefined the role of satire in U.S. politics. In 2015, Stewart stepped down as host and was replaced by Trevor Noah, uh, who initially suggested he would be a less political host, but it, 
eventually has become at least as politically engaged. I say even more so, if not more so, there we go. Since taking over as host, Noah has offered his own unique contributions to the social relevance of satire and continues to make The Daily Show one of the most significant sources of satire today. Mm. These days, the relevance of political satire to public dialogue is almost taken for granted. Candidates regularly appear on late night comedy shows. Satirists frame issues of social relevance. Stories get broken by satire news shows. Comedians go beyond joking to address their issues on uh, their addresses, address their audiences on issues all the time. But it's important to remember that this was not always the case. Comedy icons like Johnny Carson and David Letterman were not regularly engaged in politics, thankfully. And these comedians who were, like Lenny Bruce or George Carlin, didn't have the impact that a show like The Daily Show has had. Can, so I, can I say something about that? So David Letterman and Carson, Johnny Carson, they did not, uh, they, they were from a different generation where they might be liberals or they might be conservatives. But when they went to do a show, they were doing a show for everyone. And it was a place where everyone could come together and laugh and have a good time. And they're equal opportunity offenders. And you can look beyond tribalism. This is the place where you get to take your tribal jersey off and just have a good time. And, and you know, it's, uni it's, it's, it's unifying. It, it brings people together rather than dividing people. That was a different generation. The, the woke generation is you're either with us or against us. We're not here to entertain everyone. In fact, we abhor you if you're not on the left. That's the way it's, it's absolute contempt for anyone who doesn't walk in lockstep with extremist leftist views, even contempt for liberals, right? If they're not leftist and they don't care about appealing they no longer care about doing a show where you, you make sure that whatever your views see Johnny Carson and, and uh, David Letterman, they're like the late night equivalent of Dolly Parton. Like you go to a Dolly Parton show and <laughs> it doesn't not well endowed, but oh. huh? You're not as well endowed, but oh. not as well endowed. But you I if have you ever been to a Dolly Parton show? Have I? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the first time a black person's ever been asked that. Yeah. <laughs> that's not. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. At a Dolly Parton show, everyone's there. Yeah. And you'll have uh, Christian evangelicals at a Dolly Parton show, and you'll have drag queens at a Dolly Parton show, and you'll have just people across the, the political spectrum of different ideological beliefs. But she makes everyone feel welcome. And that's what late night comedy used to be is it doesn't matter what my opinions are. I'm here to, to take the piss out of everyone, equal opportunity, and we're all going to have a good time. And that's not what's happening on late night today. I'm sorry. That was a bit of a rant, but I'm yeah. glad they mentioned that that difference, you know, uh, well, I mean, the effort to constantly make everyone pay attention to politics or the way that they want you to believe uh, politics is occurring at that moment is what's happening because you're seeing all these entertainment shows just having politics cultural issues forced in it and people are the avenues of escapism or kind of or the attempt was to kind of close those off and i think we're going to start seeing more of them open but certainly that was the attempt of a lot of these um, far lefty folks and establishment people 
but as we continue, uh, so as Jeffrey Bayham chronicles in From Concrete to Colbert, the turn of the millennium marked significant shifts in the ways that broadcast news was reported. News became increasingly more sensationalized, more focused on punditry than information, and more desperate to keep viewers glued to their show in order to watch the next crisis, which is true. As these shifts took place, Stewart's The Daily Show was offering viewers a critique of the news media and an alternative form of news. And 20, uh, 2004, the same year O'Reilly was ranting about Stuart Stone's slacker audience, the Pew Research Center released a study that showed 21% of the people under the age 30 said that they regularly lean, learned about the campaign and the candidates from comedy shows like The Daily Show. Wow. That was up from 9% in 2000. Wait, wait, what are those percentages again? 9% in 2000? 2000, and 2000, and then it was 21 in 2004. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Overall, uh, over 50% of those polled in 2004 suggested they learned at least some of their political information from comedy. The point is that O'Reilly was right to worry, yet he was wrong about what to worry about. The Daily Show viewers weren't stone slackers, but they were a threat to shows like his. Young viewers were increasingly pivoting to comedy shows like The Daily Show for their political reporting. Okay, pause here again. Just a note. First of all, you didn't prove this in the article who I was <laughs> writing this. They could both be stone slackers and a threat to shows like O'Reilly's because now they're getting their political news from late night comedy. But how interesting is it today that this is progressed where now alternative media like Nerdrotic and Friday Night Tights and Nick Ricada that these, uh, these, these uh, individual content creators are the threat to establishment late night shows like the daily show mm -hmm. the shoes on the other foot now. Yeah. And they don't need millions of dollars. They can do it from their own bedrooms like we are. Uh, so it goes on, uh, considered, uh, let's see, where was I? Okay. But perhaps what is most interesting is the fact that in 2004, 27% of all respondents under the age 30 said they learned the majority read this. No, I don't think so. They learn things about the candidates and campaigns from late night and comedy program that they did not previously know or did not know previously. That self-reporting mirrors research conducted by Julia R. Fox, Gloria Colleen, and Vulcan Sarian, who found that in 2004, the amount of substantive information in The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and the broadcast network newscast was the same. The difference was that The Daily Show mixed substance with entertainment, whereas the news combined substance with hype. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> substance with entertainment on late night comedy, substance with hype on, mm, I don't know. Yeah. I think I think they both do subs very little on the substance. I, I think uh, it's almost entertainment because I have family members that were addicted to news when Trump was in office. Like they had never watched as much news as they did when he was in office. And it's like reality show, like straight up, just like reality show every morning. I'd tune in and see what's up with, with, with Trump. And then the news was saying something awful about him. And, you know, he was going to do this or said this racist thing, supposedly. And, you know, so many people I knew, particularly family members, just bought into it and were hooked. It was their two minutes, or I should say eight hours of hate a day. <laughs> just nothing but anti-Trump stuff. It was crazy. Addictive. It's addictive. 
Yeah. Uh, considered this way, it isn't surprising that over the years, The Daily Show and others like it have only become more central in attracting viewers as a source of news and no longer just ironic commentary on it. Over the years, when Stewart would be confronted with these shifting attitudes and habits, he would regularly insist that his main job was to tell jokes and he didn't want to be a journalist. Yet he often signaled that he felt compelled to step in because the mainstream news wasn't was doing such a lousy job. Perhaps one of the most famous instances of this took place in 2004 when Stewart criticized Tucker Carlson on CNN's Crossfire and asked him why he was doing such a lousy job. You're doing theater when you should be doing debate, said Stewart. What you do is not honest. What you do is partisan hackery. Hmm. I wish, I wish we could see this today from the late night show host. No. The, the only person doing this right now that I can think of and he doesn't have a late night show is Ricky Gervais. I know Therese mentioned him earlier in the chat. Ricky Gervais is, is standing up to them and calling them out and making a mockery of them. You yeah. know, appropriately he's, he's, so. He's definitely goes to hardest, you know, Chappelle will do a little bit, Chappelle. do a little bit, maybe some other ones, but he goes full, full on. Uh, he then went on, you're on CNN. The show leading into me is puppets making crank, phone calls. What is wrong with you? CNN canceled the show shortly thereafter. 2007, Stewart was tied with Dan Rather, Tom Brokaw, Anderson Cooper, and Brian Williams for the most admired news figures. What made the ranking exceptionally weird was the idea that Stewart, a comedian, was even included on the list of news figures in the first place. The results clearly showed that he had changed the public relevance of satire news. Mm. Then, when Walter Cronkite died in 2009, John Stewart was voted in an online poll by Time Magazine as America's most trusted newscaster. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This just shows me something that, look, they want to talk about lately. We, we were talking about, you know, oh, the, the public's mistrust of the media is at an all-time high. And it might be, and rightfully so. We have no reason to trust these efforts. But... It was already it was already being eroded back then. We've mm -hmm. been looking for alternative sources since then. It's just that in the early 2000s or the late 2000s, we were looking to to establishment late night comedy entertainment. We were looking to those guys and trusting them more than the news. And now we realize we can't trust those guys either. Now we've moved on to independent content creators because people are thirsty for the truth and, and someone they can put trust in. And yep, that's definitely right. Uh, so uh, what's uh, what's more, the result wasn't even close. Stewart carried forty four percent of the vote, leaving NBC's Brian Williams twenty nine percent, and ABC's Charles Gibson nineteen percent, and CBS Katie Couric seven percent in the dust. These uh, trends continued well after Stewart stepped down. When Donald Trump, uh oh, here goes the Trump stuff. When Donald Trump was elected, we witnessed satirical comedians increasingly stepping in to defend institutions rather than critique them. Steph Meyer schooled Trump on how to be presidential. Hassan Minhanji lectured him. Hassan Minaj. Minaj uh, lectured him on the First Amendment, and Michael Moore revealed his fascist tendencies. It isn't just that The Daily Show changed the role of satirical uh, comedians. It is also that it changed its viewers. Over the years, various studies have shown viewers of satire news are educated, intelligent, informed, politically engaged, and politically active. One 2012 study by 
Fairleigh Dickerson University showed that viewers of Daily Show were more some of the most informed and, and viewers of Fox News knew less than viewers of no news. Even better, it is common to worry that consuming satire makes one cynical and apathetic, but no research confirms that satire makes his audience apathetic. In fact, quite the opposite. Studied by Husan Ting Shin, Shingan, and Ping San showed the link between cynical anger and political satire was directly tied to citizen engagement. The researchers found that when people consider an issue personally important and anger serves as a motivating factor, exposure to cross-cutting political satire can transform people into active citizens. Let's see. So, one, one last paragraph I want to read. <laughs> okay. You know what I would like to see in this article, though? Hmm. I would like them to talk about what we're talking about, which is that kind of comparing it to what's happened now where people have moved beyond establishment late night comedy and have now moved to watching independent content creators and do a study with those guys because what they're doing all the time is the news is putting out hit piece after hit piece saying people are being radicalized by uh, Ryan Cannell or you know whoever they're just attacking mm -hmm. these uh, uh, cultural commentators on YouTube and calling them radical when they're not um, but I would like to see them do a study of the viewers because they they try and for any normies who don't watch who don't watch uh, independent content creators, if they're reading the mainstream news, they're reading there's all these radical people doing shows and their audiences are full of these knuckle draggers and these deplorables and these just hateful uh, uh, bigots. Right. Do a study. Talk to people who watch Internet shows and and see who they are. And I think you're going to see, like they did, they're like, surprisingly, these people are well-informed and these people are da 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 Yeah. What, what frustrates me is how often they don't take responsibility for people not trusting these narratives. You know, as for me, and I, I, I'll speak for you. I'll go and speak for you. I'm going I'm to man. I, I give you the microphone. Speak for me. <laughs> but I think a lot of us have lost a great deal of faith, not just in the institution of news, but the institutions of government, mm -hmm. you know, the coof stuff. I'm not a scientist. I don't know much about epidemiology or virology or anything. In the past, I would defer to an organization like the CDC. But in the past couple of years, seeing just how often they were wrong and how often they wouldn't remit they were wrong, to me, suggests that these people, there are some malintent by some of these people, I'm not saying everybody, mm -hmm. but some of these people, I think, were not, you know, uh, motivated to do good. I think they're motivated to do some really bad things. And so I and so many other people have lost a great deal of faith in these institutions. And I think a lot of people end up gravitating to stuff that is kind of far out, you know, like when the news talks about conspiracy stuff, They'll bring out the craziest conspiracy stuff. And like, yeah, there are people who buy into that stuff, but a lot of them gravitated to it because they've been lied to so much by the media yeah. that they just, they don't know what to believe anymore. And so anybody coming out criticizing the media seems to, to have some truth in there. And I think that's what grabs a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, you're making me think of a conversation I had yesterday this guy there was there was a group of us and uh, he was recounting a conversation he had just had with someone at a bar a bartender who he likes and knows and he said 
uh, they were talking about the shooting that just happened in Texas and, and the bartender started to say, you know, yeah, we got to raise money for these, these families because, you know, the government's just killing kids. And, uh, he said, excuse me. And then, and he said, the bartender was sort of telling him he believes he was like, what, you don't know. He's like the government, how did this kid who, who works in fast food have enough money to buy two rifles and, and where did he get this money and why were the police waiting outside? And, and, and basically my friend who was telling me this thought this was absurd. And I think the other people at the table thought it was absurd too. And then I said something and I was like, well, I'm not saying I believe the government allowed this to happen. I don't, I have no idea. I think it's probably unlikely, but is it a possibility? Yes. Right. Yeah. And, I- and that, we we no longer trust the government. I don't. Um, we no longer trust the media. So, what sounds absurd to you, uh, I understand fully why someone is is you know believes that there might be something nefarious afoot here. Right. I mean, and we know, and we know if anybody reads uh, about what they did during the the war on terror. I mean, what was the book that we read for book club last year? It was uh, Max Blumenthal's the management of savagery. And I didn't know it very much about our, the U S interventions in the Middle East. And it's, it's chock full. This is written by a leftist, by the way, it's chock full of that information, but it's also chock full of stuff about different terrorist plots and things that the, that the FBI or the CIA knew about and kind of in some cases put ideas in people's heads to see if they would, they could get them, catch them doing something so they could increase funding. I mean, yeah. we know this happens. So, yeah, just like the uh, Michigan thing. Uh, I know the uh, the first bombing of the World Trade Center tower in '93. Uh, one of the guys in there was working with the FBI. Like he got suspicious that the FBI was trying to set him up, so he recorded the guy. It was an Egyptian guy, and he has the tapes. And there was like a New York Times piece at the time written about this guy because he's playing in court trying to protect himself because once it's happened, you know, because he, the FBI is telling him, oh yeah, we're, we're not going to, these people aren't going to have real explosives, you know, these terrorists, you know, we just need you to keep an eye on them, report to us and stuff. But he got suspicious, so he started taping them. But yeah, this stuff happens all I mean, the time. I mean, even recently, look at the, uh, the, the kidnapping plot for Governor Whitmer, yeah. right? How many of those people were feds? Yeah. And we know this now, like... <laughs> There's a funny um, video on the Babylon Bee's YouTube page of um, these guys. They're like right-wing militia type guys, and they're all planning to like storm the Capitol and do stuff. But then like they all keep turning on each other, like revealing like they're in the Fed. (laughs) 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 And he goes, wait, Fred? He's like, yeah, yeah, it's me. Oh, I should go see that. Yeah. yeah. Just to just to clarify for anyone, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying I believe XYZ about this. I, I don't. I, I just, I don't know what to believe. That's all I'm saying. And I don't think it's absurd. It's not surprising to me that there are more people who are now uh, fully convinced about, about things that might be called conspiracy theories because we've lost all trust in the media. We've lost all trust in the government. So as you were saying, an unfortunate consequence of having a media that people can't trust means that some people 
are going to go beyond just saying, well, this might be a possibility. They're going to go way over to the other, like, this is absolutely what happened realm, right. you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I kind of want to play some videos. Okay, let's do it. Uh, I want to play a clip from a Daily Show episode, like, almost 20 years ago. Uh, so while you while you do that, tell Py Pirate which one you want to pull up, and I'm going to read these two Super Chats. Uh, Pirate, if you see the link, it's just called Even Steven. Uh, let's see. Steve the Front Porch Conservative is here. Hello, sir, with his nice chapeau. Gives us a super chat of $4.99 and says, I think that folks, be they liberals, conservatives, populists, or libertarians, now realize how woke entertainment has become. People are waking up. That's mm -hmm. my sense, too. I agree. I think it's so over the top. Like, they're rushing too fast. Because I, I, I told you back when um, this statue tearing down stuff was happening, mm -hmm. how uh, they're trying to start off by tearing down Confederate statues. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the mad dogs, as I call them, were moving too fast. They started tearing down Christopher Columbus statues. Uh, I think there was even like a Martin Luther King statue that torn yeah. down. And I remember, you know, when I was home once, and I was watching, my parents were watching MSNBC, and I overheard the commentator uh, talking about the Confederate stuff and how it needs to, you know, the Confederate statues need to go. And I was thinking, I think these people are trying to control these mad dogs, to try to get them to stay on the Confederate stuff, since that's an easier way to get these statues torn down because so many people have a black and white view of the Civil uh, War, both in the literal and figurative sense. Mm -hmm. I think they're trying to slow things down because when these people who are so addicted to just tearing things down, we're moving so fast, I think I'm starting to wake people up because you're going too damn fast. Yeah, I know they deface like a Jimi Hendrix statue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, oh, Pirate, do you have a thing? If you, I can put it in a chat if you can't find it. It's just caught even Steven. Uh, let me copy this. Even Steven. Okay, while you're doing that, I'll read one more. Let's see. Oh, this isn't a super chat. This is from Pirate. He says, haha, Carrie's saying, take the piss. My Yorkshire is rubbing off in a good way. <laughs> is that where I got that? Is that where I heard that? Probably. You guys have some funny sayings. Okay, Scott Wellman, 20 Australian dollars. Thank you, Scott Wellman. He says, if there's one thing we know about woke people, they love polls. <laughs> I, see what, I see what you did there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then Scott Miller yeah, says, the legacy media is dying and they know it. All they can do is lash out. Start yeah. the interim, like babies. Yeah. All right, here we go. Back when he did. Just made me vomit in my own mouth. What's the weather like up your own ass? Tonight's topic, Islam versus Christianity. Which is right? Islam. <laughs> Islam! <laughs> there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Stephen? <laughs> This debate is about religion. Let's discuss it rationally. Now, think about it. If you were God, would you manifest your divine glory to a shepherd in a cave in Saudi Arabia in the seventh century, or as the son of a carpenter in a manger in Judea in the year zero? Come on, use your mind. <laughs> 
Stephen, what part of there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet, don't you understand? <laughs> for the sake of argument that your God is the one true God. That would mean Allah is not the one true God, which we know he is. Don't you see your logic? <laughs> First off, it's not my logic, Steve. It's God's logic as written in the Bible, every word of which is true. And we know every word is true because the Bible says that the Bible is true. And if you remember from earlier in this sentence, every word of the Bible is true. Are you following me here, or are you some kind of mindless zealot? <laughs> no, there is one way of settling this. Crusade. All right, there are two ways of settling this. The one that I was thinking of, a pray-off. You pray to your God, and I will pray to mine, and we will see which one of us gets smited. Great, let's do it. <clears throat> is your God ready? My God was born ready. Or, uh, not so much born as begotten, not made, one being with the Father ready. <clears throat> All right. On your mark. Get set. Pray. Stun! No, 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 no. I'm done. I'm done too. And I appear to be unsmoted. Yeah. For now, but let me tell you, when you die and go to hell, you're going to wish you weren't dead. Hmm. Interesting. Now, am I going to be doing that after I go to paradise to join my bevy of spotless virgins for all eternity? You know, because I, uh, I just want to give them the heads up where I'm going for eternity. Guys, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just starting to think that this religion thing, we're not going to settle it in three minutes. So if you just wrap it up and find some common ground, that would be great. Sorry. <laughs> Hmm. Maybe the Jew's right. Yeah, maybe maybe so, well, you know. Which is funny because I, we can I stop that one. We Unless it is it get is it, is it oh, no, big, done. I'm that's safe. it. I was like, is there a big funny ending? Because most of the laughs were up top. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh so why do you think that's funny? Because I think they did a great job kind of making fun of the discourse that occurred where people were so locked into a position, unwilling to compromise. And I think a lot of it was done for entertainment, like uh, on actual news shows. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what they're ultimately getting at, you know, that, that lack of true discourse of people just arguing from, you know, uh, a position that they're unwilling to move on and unwilling to see things from another person's point of view. Yeah. It's, um, to me, when I see that, the punchline there, I saw some people were saying, uh, I think I think they saw a different punchline than I did. The punchline there to me is not Islam or Christianity. The punchline there to me is what you said, is the way in which people have discourse or debate where they're not open to to listening to the other person and they make circular arguments. So they were both doing their version of a circular argument. Mm -hmm. And what strikes me as, as so funny now is that if they were to do that about the woke, they could easily do that about the woke religion now because the woke religion, there are some people who defend woke with the circular arguments. There are a lot of people who defend woke with circular arguments. Um, this is true because I, I said so kind of thing. This is true because it's my uh, experience, it's my lived experience. Mm -hmm. And 
you can't question lived experience. And they have all these rules that just kind of depend on, it's a circle. They just depend on each other. You could easily do that same kind of joke that's about like making fun of the ways in which people have discourse where woke is one of the religions being featured, but I don't think they'll ever do that. Cause I think, I think they would, they would, uh, they'd be afraid that people thought it was taking shots at woke itself. Mm. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. I agree with that. I think so. But yeah, there's that. I uh, had another one. Uh, we can pull up the Simpsons one, please. Let's see. Any moment, I'll pull it up. We need to. Let's see. Let's see. This is, by the way, this is a great example. I just saw this go by. <clears throat> Greg the Baritone in the chat said, ask Ibram X. Kendi to define racism without using racism. That's a great example of the circular argument. He can't define it without referencing it. It's, right. it's, you could so easily make fun of that. Okay, uh, this is a Kent Brockman segment from one of the Simpsons episodes. Tonight on I on Springfield, just miles from your doorstep, hundreds of men are given weapons and trained to kill. The government calls it the army. What a more alarmist name would be the Killbot Factory. <laughs> I always love that. <laughs> it was very good at mocking not just political stuff, but culture as well. And I think that's something that's been lost to Simpsons as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's very on the nose there. It's like, but the alarmist name would be, which is exactly what they do. How do we make it more alarmist? All right. And then I uh, have one more. Uh, this is from the Movie Network. You ever seen the Movie Network? Yeah, I have. It's been a while, but yeah. So, Movie Network came out in nineteen, I think, seventy six, and it's about a man who uh, has a mental breakdown when uh, he's going to be fired from his news gig, and so he ends up going live on air and goes on these rants that really grab people. But ultimately, the rants are safe, like they don't threaten the establishment, and so he's allowed to do that. But uh, then he starts getting to territories that does threaten them. And so he's taken aside and has a meeting with the head of the company, uh, who's played by Ned Beatty. And we're about to see this scene. And it's not particularly, it's not like a funny scene. It's not a comedy scene, but it is something that I think is just really well acted. And tell me if Ned Beatty's character reminds you of anyone. And Pirate, if you could skip to 130, please. Thank you. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. Is that clear? You think you've merely stopped a business deal? That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. 
You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immense interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, Reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? Get up on your little 21-inch screen and howl about America and democracy. There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide, and Exxon. Those are the nations of what do you think the Russians talk about in their councils of state? Karl Marx? They get out their linear programming charts, statistical decision theories, minimax solutions, and compute the price cost probabilities of their transactions and investments, just like we do. But we no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Beale. The world is a college of corporations, inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. You could cut it there, but okay. I just think that was interesting kind of commentary for something that came out in the 70s that kind of saw the way that the world was going regarding globalization. And you had this guy making this kind of proto-globalist type speech about corporations being, you know, the nations of the world very Klaus, Klaus Schwab-ish like. Oh, okay. I was stuck thinking, who does he remind me of? And I couldn't think of it. <laughs> he needs the German accent. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's kind of, you know, I just also realized while you're playing that for me, I don't, I haven't seen network. That doesn't look familiar to me. I thought Holly Hines was in network. Uh, Holly Hunter. Oh, that is maybe. Uh, network news is that something different? This is just just called network. Okay, then I need to watch this. I've been confusing it with something else this whole time. Uh, anyway, wait. So how does that relate to? I'm still just a little. I'm dumb, dumb, carry tonight. <laughs> how does that relate to the late night comedy topic? This is just a general in terms of satire and news, specifically because the movie was critiquing news media and sensationalism that media back in the 70s and so they 
put forward a guy who's clearly not well mentally and are using this guy for ratings. And he's saying a lot of things to get people stirred up, but he's not really saying anything that's going to uh, really change the establishment. It's no threat to the establishment. And so uh, I thought that was, in general, I know it's not a late night thing, but mm -hmm. in general, I think that movie was a good piece of satire for his time. And it just makes me a little sad considering just how much of the satire we've seen in the past 40 or 50 years that hasn't had as nearly as much of an effect as I and many other people would have thought mm -hmm. in the last two years uh, with stuff you know about Trump and the coof and all these other things where I saw so many people who were unwilling to, to really question what they were perceiving, even though they know that the media gauges in hyperbole and sensationalism. These are things The Daily Show is putting out, The Simpsons putting out, um, uh, Network. Uh, even if you want to conclude a movie like Wag the Dog, which isn't so much about news, but, you know, about faking, you know, some news event, you know. Fake for, narrative. For, yeah. You would think that this would have a greater impact on people's perceptions of uh, the world and uh, the news and the way it reports on the world, but not as much as I would have thought. Clearly it has an effect on you and I, many people listening, but I, I would have thought more people would have been more skeptical with the reporting of all these different news events that are constantly you know, being blown out of proportion to get people hysterical. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of, of people in the chat saying, stuff about this film. A lot of people are saying it's a great film. Predictive programming, says Alan Scott. And then Adam said, Adam Worrell says the end of the movie is an inevitable outcome too. So I'm going to have to watch it. I haven't seen it. Oh, yeah. It's a good movie. You should watch it. Somebody tell me. Oh, thank you. Julio Scissors gives us a $10 super chat. Thanks, dude. Uh, somebody tell me what movie I'm thinking of. <clears throat> What's the movie with Holly Hunter? <clears throat> that I'm that a person might confuse for this based on the name. Uh, I don't know what I don't know what I'm thinking of. Anyway, <clears throat> can I show you a clip? I did pull something up. Chris, are you still there? Yes, can you hear me? Oh, yeah, I can now. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what's happening? Oh, okay, yeah. hold on. <clears throat> I lost you for a second. So I know we have a lot of knitters in the audience and. I was trying to think of what were some of the most shameful, um, I would say not entertaining, but just just meant to rile up and to outrage and to get applause from the people who already agree with them. What were some of those moments in the past few years on late night? And this one, I don't know if you saw this one, Chris. Can you see that? Hmm. This one happened on The Colbert Show. And I'm just going to play it. You know, folks, there's some big news in the world of crafting. And yes, I know I talk about crafting a lot. Uh, a lot of people say the show really took off in 2016 when I started focusing on crafting. Well, today's crafting dusk up concerns the online knitting community Ravelry. Which just, oh, we got some, we got some Ravel heads here tonight. Ravelry just announced that they are banning support of Donald Trump and his administration. Let's just pause there for a second. I mean, what kind of zombies do you have in your audience where 
you haven't even you haven't gotten to any jokes yet not really i mean you're kind of being silly funny at the beginning about how he talks about crafting all the time you get to the news item which is that this website for knitting has now decided to ban kick off all of their anybody who voted for trump or is a supporter of trump you can no longer talk about it we know people in our community who were affected by this ban knitters in our community who were affected by this ban that your first instinct when you hear that, when you hear about this kind of censorship, this very illiberal move, your first instinct is to cheer. If you're cheering at that, you're not a liberal. It doesn't matter if you like Trump or not. It doesn't matter if you like Trump voters or not. If you're cheering at that kind of censorship, you are not a liberal. You're something else entirely. We cannot provide a space that is inclusive of all and also allow support for open white supremacy. Wow. Now this, I gotta say, bold. That was bold. It was the right thing to do, but it was hard news for the white supremacist knitting collective, Neo Nitsies. Turns out. Turns out hate speech and intolerance had gotten out of hand on Ravelry's forums. Before the site was invaded by Trump supporters, one Ravelry user described the community as a happy little bubble. <laughs> but you knew it had to burst. I mean, for Pete's sake, you all run around with those pointy needles all the time. <laughs> now, as you might imagine, Ravelry's new policies didn't go unchallenged. In fact, they led to a swift reaction from the knitting world. <laughs> That's saying a lot swift reaction, because this is the same group of people that take seven months to make a lumpy baby bonnet. <laughs> One Ravelry user was so upset by the ban on Trump supporters, they posted, kill yourselves. <laughs> wow. That is a bit more violent than I would have expected from someone who knits. Well, it's a complicated issue. But, you know, I think, uh, you know what I think would be simple? you could all kill yourself. <laughs> now. It's so disappointing. Not just that he's not funny anymore. It's just, I know Colbert is devout Catholic and, you know, he's talked about how he teaches Bible study and stuff. You know, I would think that his morality would be stronger than his political. Wait. Ability. He says he teaches Bible study? Yeah. yeah he's, a, he's a devout religious person. What? I seems less religious now, given this content. I never knew that about him. Really? Yeah. yeah. I know interviews where he talks about it. But it's 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 sad, because I see people, family members, other people, who are putting the ideology ahead of their moral convictions. Yes. They're putting it ahead of the gospel, if they're Christians. And, they're and putting... Go ahead. They're putting it ahead of liberalism if they yeah. think they're liberals. Because Stephen Colbert is clearly so consumed by anger at Trump that it destroyed the comedy. It, it's like when we, we were doing a Saturday Night Live episode and we talked about Norm MacDonald's uh, take on Alec Baldwin doing Trump, where uh, Norm didn't like Alec Baldwin's impression of Trump because he thought the hatred that Alec Baldwin had for Trump came through the impression. And he said that Norm said that you can't do good impressions of people if you have that much disdain and animosity yeah. to someone. And I think that's clearly with what's going on with Colbert's stuff, how overtaken he is 
by anger and hatred of someone and how much he's just sold out to the establishment. It just really sucks because he's always, well, not lately, but, you know, he used to be a big, you know, person I look up to, you know, in terms of comedy and yeah. knowing that, you know, he does or did have some moral <laughs> background similar to myself. Uh, it's just very frustrating just to, to see uh, him kind of just destroy himself in my view. You know, it's, there's something about uh, that joke. Okay. So the joke that he makes there, <clears throat> excuse me, with the picture, he's doing, he's doing an image joke. He's doing a photo joke, like a meme joke. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm sorry. He shows these, these uh, people from Charlottesville with the torches, the people that we all think of as white nationalists. And there were white nationalists there. I don't know who those guys in the photo are. Um, I presume some of them are white nationalists. He shows that picture. And then the joke is he puts, uh, he superimposes these knitted pink hats on them. And the reason why his audience laughs at that, the reason why the viewer is supposed to laugh at that, it relies us on us knowing how absurd it is that Ravelry is supposedly overrun by white supremacists. That's the whole reason the joke is funny because we know including his audience on some level knows that it's not true. If that, if that Ravelry knitting site were actually run overrun with, with white supremacists, that joke wouldn't be funny because you would be able to see the white supremacy, the white supremacists right in front of you. You wouldn't have to, you wouldn't have to create them with the joke. You know, that's why people laugh at that because it's so absurd. Yeah. They, they should be more afraid if white yes. is as prevalent as they say it is. Yeah. I always said that a lot of the people, you know, far lefty social justice types, a lot of them are grifters. Like you can't possibly like, you can't a pro black person saying that, you know, we're getting lynched every day and there are so much white supremacy everywhere. Like, do you really think that is? Cause you're going on a platform, Facebook or Twitter, something created by white people on a machine created by white people typing out a bunch of stuff that's going to be seen by a lot of white people and there's going to be no real repercussions yeah. you're not going to face any for what you post like there's no real threat of violence to that i mean just imagine if computers existed back in you know uh jim crow era you know like my, my granddad who got death threats from the KKK, do you think he'd be going up and calling white people all honking crap or all these other terrible things, you know, on social media that existed back then, you know, thinking that, oh, nothing's going to happen to me. Like, no, that's just, it's, it's so insulting that they're trying to give that perception that we can see observable reality tells you it's nothing even close to what they're suggesting. They have, it's not true but they're just hoping that other people will go along with it because of the ideology. And then they can artificially propel themselves up the social ladder or the professional ladder because it's all about them. How, how can they benefit? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to me. The other thing is, well, in that, just to go back to that clip for one second, when they say, I don't know if you noticed the sleight of hand there, but when he's reading the Ravelry statement, he says, they're banning all Trump supporters because we can't support white supremacy. They are equating support of Trump with white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And that tells you everything you need to know because that is a bald faced, disgusting lie 
to do that, to brand anyone who voted for the guy that you don't like to call them a white supremacist is, is what you're saying. It's insulting. It belittles what white supremacy is. It belittles um, any person who's actually ever been a victim of white supremacy. Like there's so many things wrong with that kind of a lie and they just do it so casually. Uh, Trump supporters, white supremacy. And he does it so casually. His audience does it so casually, just clapping and applauding at that as if there's any truth to it. it, it it's, I, think it's, I think it's disgusting, that, that clip. Well, it's like, um, I want to say, one of the World War II Germans, starts with an N, I think, was it Goebbels? One of them said that uh, a lie repeated enough eventually becomes the truth. And that's exactly what we've seen. It's like so many people are in this sphere where even if they're not watching the news, they're watching the late night comedy shows, uh, they're going to online publications, going into the uh, safe space, Facebook, other places, uh, social media uh, places that are putting forward the same damn narratives, the same talking points. And so many people, because I think we all tend to believe this this way, if some view or belief or something is prevalent around us, we, we tend to equate that to the truth. We just go, oh, mm -hmm. this must be true if so many people are saying it. If so many people believe it, yeah. It's mm -hmm. just a shorthand where we just pick it up. Yeah. Uh, let me read a couple of these. Uh, what is this? Ah, oh, super chat. The pirate starred this for me. Super chat from Minnesota Black Road Regiment. Two dollars is up against Carrie tonight. That's my low views. LOL. I didn't know you had a show on Wednesday night. I'm sorry, sir. But it doesn't matter. We're not in a competition. Thank you for the super chat. Let's see. What is this one? This is, oh, this is not a super chat. This is a, I just want to put this on screen because I remember you, Wicked Psyched. Uh, Wicked Psyched is someone who really liked my paper folded joke. It says Carrie's paper folded a hundred times is way funnier. I almost forgot about that until you you mentioned that in a previous video. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I appreciate it. I thought it was funny. I don't know. I like silly humor. And uh, Therese, this is a chat from Therese that says, Ravelry has been banning and lying about us since 2009. Yeah, I believe it. Anyway. So... That was the clip I brought to this ball game. Do you do you have more? I know you had some others of back when it used to be funny. Uh, I did have a short clip, uh, or, or I just want to play the beginning part of "Strangers with Candy" with Colbert to illustrate. It's funny. It's very offensive because he says the R word <laughs> a lot. So I don't know how to play it, but yeah, very offensive. I'm just giving that warning. <laughs> What's the R word? I'm just kidding. Yeah, you only have to play like a just a little bit of it, but yeah. Jerry, can I speak to you for a moment? Oh, I gotta leave early today. I have to have my uterus scraped. I brought a note. I know. I read the note. We we all read the note. Principal Blackman has asked me to speak to you about Kimberly Timothy. My locker mate. Yes. We suspect she may be retarded. Oh. And we will hope to <laughs> eye on her. Let us know if she does anything retarded. But Jerry, be careful. If she suspects anything, she may fly into a rage where she would have the strength of an ape 
and no remorse. Jerry, not even a bullet would bring her down. I don't know. Snarking on a locker mate just doesn't seem right. We're counting on you, Jerry. I'll see what I can do. Did you love this show? Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was one of I, I didn't appreciate it when it was initially on, but once it got canceled, I started watching it and was kind of upset that I didn't watch it while I was, you know, currently airing. But, you know, it's one of my favorite shows. It's very, it's a black comedy, not with black people. There's one black. <laughs> but it's very, it's a dark sense of humor that kind of matches my own. But uh, it, it, it did parody and even satire. Really well, I know this isn't about news, but uh, it did. You know, I was making fun of a lot of the after-school specials and a lot of other things. But uh, it, the comedy, I just, I, I thought it was really well written. Well, something about this clip off the bat is he would never use the R word now. Mm -hmm. Never, because right. he's fully in the woke cult, and they have words they consider they have like a whole list of words you can't say because they consider those words to be weapons, no matter the context that, that there's no, um, it's almost sacred to them. And there's no context in which you can utter certain, certain words. And so I could never see him doing that joke today because he would say it, that's a no go zone. You know, well, most of that stuff from Comedy Central in the early 2000s, late 90s is like cancelable material. If you remember, Jimmy Kimmel did a, I won't say blackface, but brownface where he's put on brown makeup and was Carl Malone. And I thought it was hilarious, but now that would get him canceled totally. Absolutely. The whole well, man thing itself would just get him, him and Corolla canceled. Although Corolla's kind of leans right, so I'm sure they're yeah. canceling anyway. Well, jumping on trampolines with girls. He used to have that on the man show. They would never, they, they there would was, never do that today. I don't know if you ever saw that that skit where him and Corolla went out to, I think, Venice Beach or somewhere. And they were asking um, people, particularly women, if they wanted to help end women's suffrage. I did see that. <laughs> people were, like, signing it. And then front of someone were like, wait a minute. What, what, what is this? He's like, oh, you know, it's just, you know, suffrage. You know, it's just. Women, you know, dealing with suffrage is just really bad. They're like, oh, okay, I'll sign in. I'm just responding to Pirate, who's asking if we want to end with a palate cleanser, like something really funny. I'm not saying that wasn't funny. I just didn't laugh very much. Wasn't funny. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs> uh, that's a pity. That's a pity. <laughs> it's funny. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. What can we end with with a palate a palate cleanser? That's like a genuinely funny, whether from late night, like an old late night clip, or uh, why don't can we do a Conan or something? I don't know. Uh, we could do a Conan, or we could do since you mentioned him before, and he did do satirical news. We could end with a Norm Macdonald clip. Oh, yeah. We can update. Yeah. Pirate, why don't you find us your favorite Norm Macdonald funny clip from We Can Update? It's a pirate's choice. And we'll do that one. <laughs> I just like the sound of it. Pirate's choice. Yeah. Pirate's choice. 
uh, people in the chat are asking about that bit you were talking about, the women's suffrage. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that, for anyone who hasn't seen it, they should find that because it's it's hilarious. It's one of those, you know, man on the street bits. And the way they frame the question is, is funny because they're just like, you know, we're here to end women's suffrage. It's awful, you know. And I think the mind, for people who don't know what that word means and they're just, you know, psychologically like, suffrage sounds like suffering. It must be terrible. And they're like, sign me up. <laughs> and there's all these women who are signing to end, end women's suffrage. Is kind that of was kind of the first time I think we saw a man on the street. Maybe Leno or someone did something like that. But I remember uh, Kimmel back when he was still somewhat funny would do certain things on his own show, the ABC show. Like he did one where they went up to people on the street and asked them uh, which they like better, uh, the Affordable Health Care Act or Obamacare. And people are like, yeah, I love Obamacare, but I hate the Affordable Health Care Act. That's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember that. Yeah, it's like, uh, makes you depressed. Okay. He's found a norm clip. Let's do it. Well, then now the fake news. Well, it is finally official. Murder is legal in the state of California. <laughs> On Tuesday at 1.15, the moment the Simpson verdict was delivered, Court TV scored its highest ratings ever. An hour later, the channel went out of business. <laughs> Two hours after the verdict, L.A. police had their first solid lead in the hunt for the real killers. A new witness has come forward who saw three men fleeing the crime scene the night of the murders. Police have released this sketch and would like to hear from anyone who has seen these three individuals. You guys have to remember, he was being told to stop. They were telling him to stop doing OJ jokes. In Washington, Mayor Marion Barry praised the verdict as, quote, wise and just. And he called upon people of all races to please get him some crack. <laughs> well, that covers the main developments in the O.J. Simpson case. This oh, he stopped it. I guess that's all we get. Just a little taste. <laughs> Just a little taste of Norm. <laughs> Some of the best, I think, in Norm's delivery is after he was really good at uh, after he would deliver the joke and totally deadpan, which I love his deadpan. But then he would just leave that sometimes that long silence and pause there. And if no one's laughing, he was really good at waiting long enough until then people would start laughing again. It's just like that really quick kind of it's such subtle. That's the word I'm looking for. It's subtle. But I like that he, he would hold it in that way. Um yeah, Norm is a legend, people said. And and Greg the Baritone says, uh, Norm was fired from SNL because the NBC exec was OJ's friend. That is the rumor, yes. And they were telling him to stop doing jokes about OJ, and he just did more of them after that. There's entire, I think that's what you pulled up, Pirate. There's entire clips on, like, montages on YouTube you can watch where it's just oj joke after oj joke after oj joke and he just did not he did not care what they said so i i wish i could find i can't find a clip or, or article but i remember norm made fun of steph myers once <laughs> like how bad steph myers show was 
And, you know, when, when Norm passed away, Steph, you know, obviously didn't take it as a chance to put any jabs, but paid tribute to him. But I always thought it was funny that clearly Norm didn't find Steph funny and made that he just, just he, he said what he thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's not a, a liar, a crook, murderer, or anything like that. So it'd be good to get the, see, I, I don't, I think we should get the, homicide out of the White House and get like a, a, a fresh start because we don't want any more murderers. I no, think we, we should just go on to the next question. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh Clinton, he murdered a guy. Yeah, you know, <laughs> no accusations with that. That's one, a little Charlie. too That's far. That's the way it does Let's work. Just, just go on to the next question. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This is not my week. What can I tell you? <laughs> I'm being very nice, okay? They're so awkward. <laughs> Good boy. Now, Norm. Do you never hear that? No. Listen, Norm, I don't want to get into this. this, and I don't want to hear it, and this is not the place to make those accusations. And you're supposed to be funny. Oh. Let's get on to <laughs> There you go. This is a live show. Norm, wow. but you have been properly chastised by both of us. I'm not going to ask the next question. I thought it was a matter of record. Shut up. <laughs> okay. Let me do this, OK? okay. I'll tell you what, on your record, you will not be on my if you don't shut up. Uh, All right, uh, now. <laughs> Let's talk football. All right, man, manslaughter. Let's talk football. Norm, <laughs> did you ever hear the word home? Oh, the phone is ringing. I certainly hope that somebody calling to tell you to go home. Oh, no. <laughs> phone ringing. Oh. <laughs> um. Answer the phone. <laughs> Hello? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, no. Uh, the thing is this. There, uh, you know Matt Strauss? Yeah, the producer. <laughs> the producer. He told me it would be funny. He said, like, why don't you carry a cell phone on and then let it ring and then have, pretend like there's a guy on it. Is there anybody on it? No, it's a thing. Pretend. You know what, Norm? <laughs> You're a dead man. <laughs> what? Show is still on. <laughs> oh yeah, it is still on. Uh, I've never seen that clip. Really? It's so funny because he just keeps he plays again. He's so subtle. He plays it the right way. He is being funny and facetious. He's like, you know, I thought it was a matter of public record, right? Like <laughs> they don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> they're so tight. they're so passive aggressive until Star Jones comes out. Man. I didn't get the part with the phone. Did you understand that? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> <I> guess <laughs> funny to interrupt the interview with a phone call or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't get that. Uh, the Green Man says, what's even funnier is that Alex Jones was on The View, too. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine that. Uh, Pierce Morgan, back when Pierce Morgan had a show on CNN. Well, we'll have to we'll have to save the Alex Jones on on the View for another episode. But Geraldo as well, multiple Geraldo. times. He was on Geraldo. Mm -hmm. I believe that one. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> oh, we do have another super chat from Ned. Thank you, Ned. Ned Hill gives us four ninety nine and says, "Carrie, Ned from Charleston. I hope you're well. Great show. Colbert's from Charleston. Yeah, I know. He's one of he's one of the South Carolinians. Uh, he graduated from Porter God High School." $35,000 a year. Well, I'm sure it's a lot more than that now. 
Ned. <laughs> that was back then. I'm sure it's a lot more expensive than that now. Um, okay. There's any, uh, you know, I know you think there's a, or I should ask, are there any shows or comedians, you know, obvious other than Ricky Gervais that you think are doing really good satire at the moment? Uh, I mean, the usual suspects that we've talked about who are kind of outside the mainstream, Ryan Long is hilarious. Uh, uh, JP Buck. As, in terms of mainstream people, I, I can't, it's hard for me to think of anyone who's challenging the false narrative and who's who's actually doing authentic comedy, equal opportunity comedy, and, and, and really using humor to shed a light on the what's upside down about the about the world and about the news it's just hard for me to think of anyone outside of ricky gervais and, and dave chappelle sometimes as you said um i don't know chrissy Mayer, of course but but who who at that like that that level of of any of these late night show hosts and in, in the mainstream no yeah. bill maher is starting to get a little more critical of woke which is great i think it's great i don't find him particularly funny Every once in a while, I do. Um, Pirate says Kyle Dunnigan. Do you watch him? Yeah, Kyle's funny. I, I, he does a better impression of Biden than anybody on SNL. Even though the guy they have now does a better Biden than previously, but still not close to what uh, Kyle Dunnigan does. I, I'm not that familiar with him. Uh, I somebody, watch him. yeah. Somebody else recommends Mark Normand. I don't know him either. Yeah, Ryan Long, I agree. Uh, the other night I had on uh, Lila Hart, which is, oh, that interview was so, she was so raw. It was great. I mean, she was not afraid to just talk about everything. I'm surprised that the interview is still on our channel, actually. <laughs> <laughs> she really got into some of the forbidden topics. Wow. But, um, um yeah, it's hard for me to to think. You know who I would um, be? I was gonna say Alex Stein does this very good, even though oh, it's not produced, but in terms of funny. the parody and satire, you know, in front of city councils, I think he does an excellent job making fun of, you know. Alex Stein is hilarious. Uh all those compound media guys like Gino Visconti, who I got to interview him recently, and he is he he doesn't care. He has no sacred words. He'll he'll be an equal opportunity offender no matter what you think of him using certain words. Like he's he's just like old school comedy, like old school stand up, and and not fearful. And I love that. Um, I was gonna say, wouldn't it be great if at some point in my fantasy universe, Key and Peel would become unwoke? And we get back together <laughs> and and start doing unwoke sketch show. Like it would be I mean, I like the original show too. It doesn't have to have commentary, right? Political yeah, commentary. It's just funny. funny. And and that's one of the things I appreciated about the uh the new Kids in the Hall reboot. Had all the original members in there and for the most part they kind of steer away from politics and culture stuff, which the old show didn't really get too much in that either. But uh, I thought it was kind of refreshing, you know, given that, like I was saying earlier, everything's politicized, right? They have to put some kind of political commentary in it. 
Okay, Pirate's going to play some Kyle Dunnigan for us since I don't, I'm not that familiar with him. Uh, you can play the Fresh Prince or Fresh Prez. Hey, what's going on? I'll tell you yeah. what's going on. Um, you, we are the opposite of each other, okay? Let me just tell you that. Like, yeah. I am everything delicious and you're everything yeah. disgusting and you no. acting like you act, you <laughs> acting like you're in my league is offensive and you need to apologize. Point, but, character point. I'm not a problem. <laughs> pickle. Pickles are crispy and awesome, and they're cool summer treats, and they can be sweet, and they can also what? be sour. Stupid popsicle can't be sour. You're not, you're just, you're all not you are is sweet. You're one dimension. <laughs> Point. <laughs> you're not a treat. You cannot use the word treat. Yes, I'm can. sorry. No. Point. <laughs> not only can I be a singular treat, you can slice me up and put me on sandwiches, bitch. You're the thing that, like, mom moms go to their... Moms go to their kids, like, you have to finish your pickle. You can't play. You're a thing like you can't play until you get finished. That's how okay. gross you are. This is, this is, this is, okay. Can I get a point counterpoint? Counterpoint. So here's the thing is, I'm awesome. I'm tasty. People like me. I'm crunchy. Delusional, the other thing is, okay. Yeah, delusional. The other awesome. thing is, you, you, you this get up. so weird. Nothing. <laughs> Yeah, Goopy even gross. the sun likes me, dude. Even the, the sun, sun does wants not me like you. Devoured. <laughs> yeah, you just turn into. Yeah. Ah. yeah. Yeah. And you know what? And then, and, and, and the other thing is, you're just you, a cucumber. To stay rigid, you need you're to stick up your ass. You need to stick up your ass to stay rigid, bro. I don't have an ass. Yes, you do. <laughs> what is that stupid thing going into? The bottom. <laughs> This is so weird. <laughs> and I can right, I, I can I, and I can be preserved forever. If you come out of the freezer, you're done, dude. Point counterpoint. Play one of uh, his I want is to live forever. Play what? His impression okay, maybe of um he does a really good Bill Maher and a Ben Shapiro. Uh let's see. Can I pick? Let's do let's let's see his uh Ben Shapiro impression. Okay, Pirate, can you please look that up? Yeah, I don't know what software he uses for his face. Like the technology's gotten better, mm -hmm. but it still kind of sometimes creeps me out. <laughs> first of all, first of all, I just want to know where you stand on the point counterpoint that we just saw because I'm fully on pickle side. <laughs> well, I hate chocolate, so I'll never side with chocolate. That's true. You do. Hate hey, chocolate. look who it is! Better for shrimp all. It's me, Jeraco Biden. I hear you're a very talented trans am. Okay, I'm confused. You called the Ben Shapiro show. I'm Ben Shapiro. I don't know who Benifer Shrimpo is. Also, I'm not a trans am. That's a car. I'm a human man. Darn right you're a man. Who cares what you're born with? And congratulations. I just signed a Mexican order. So you have, not, 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 a, a sexed in border. You can play hockey with the girls now. Okay, I'm sick of explaining this to everyone. I am fully biologically male. I was born with one set of reproductive organs, and they are fully male. Now on to your point about hockey. Not interested. Look, look. look. Uh, yeah, I don't find this funny. I got a bigger um, I, <laughs> I, I like the weird stuff. I like the pickle on the popsicle. <laughs> that's that's more my sense of humor tonight. <laughs> you are learning a lot about my sense of humor. I, I uh, do I is it that I dislike impressions? No, I like impressions. I think maybe they just have to be a little. They have to be a little uh, outsized. Do you like, like that? That, that impression is too good. That impression's too good. Okay. It's like 
So you don't like more spot on. It's got to have some exaggeration in it. Yeah. Like, remember when uh, on SNL, Chevy Chase used to do uh, Gerald Ford, and it was so over the top and ridiculous. Like, I, I think I like that kind of impression. I, I, I kind of agree for certain ones. Like on SNL, Phil Hartman did uh, Frank Sinatra, but Joe Piscopo also did Frank Sinatra. And Joe Piscopo's Frank Sinatra was more accurate, but Phil Hartman's was more f funny. And yeah. also with the Bill Clinton uh, impression, Daryl Hammond did a more spot on Bill Clinton impression, but uh, Phil Hartman did a funnier one, in my opinion, because he exaggerated. That's it. That's it. The funny matters more to me than how good the impression is, how yeah. accurate the impression is. I would rather it be funnier and not really get the mannerisms down or the tone of voice down. He nails the way of, he, he nails Shapiro's cadence and way of speaking. He's nailing Biden, but I wasn't finding the bit that funny, I guess. Okay. Well, let's see if you find this any funnier. Okay. Comedians can't make fun of Joe Biden because it's impossible. Because he's been great. I know a bunch of fat people are disappointed because trying to make fun of Joe Biden is like praying to God. A complete waste of time. Okay, that's our show. I want to thank my guests, Benjamin Netanyahu and Pete Davidson. <laughs> Who's this Joe Biden everyone keeps talking? <laughs> well, I was born and raised in Scranton, Kansas. <laughs> car by the pools where I spent my days. Till a dude named Corn Pop, who wasn't that cool, started making trouble at the swimming pool. So I took a chain, wrapped it around my legs. They're <laughs> hairier than my other legs. Not, not my, but black kids would touch them. Come on. <laughs> Then I got on a train okay. and moved to D.C. Jirak Jabrama gave a job to me. <laughs> I shuffled around and sucked fingertips. Made a big speech, kissed the boy on the lips. What are you looking at? <laughs> okay, yeah, there. this is funny. I hold the ladies tight and sniff all their hairs. First person American to fall up the stairs. Ran for president. I was a winner. Winner was me. Now I sit at my desk as a president. Not, not president. You know the thing. Come on, get your face out of your ears. Okay, humor humor is clearly subjective because we have people in the chat saying this is not funny. This <laughs> is funny. It's subjective, guys. It's comedy. <laughs> I would say that on a scale of one to ten, that was a four. It was a solid four. It it was funnier. It was no. It was a five. It, it was good. It was better than the um the Ben Shapiro one. Anyway. <laughs> Better than SNL. <laughs> right. And I would put the pickle and the popsicle at uh, like an eight. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you're <laughs> what? Maybe you're just hungry. No, I just think it's so weird. I want to go back and watch that one again. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid. Uh, gosh. Uh, okay. We've gone a little over two hours. I think we're going to wrap up. Is that If that's cool with you. Is that cool with you? Okay, a uh, couple of announcements because I forgot them at the top. As I mentioned before, we do. If you would like, if you like the show and you want to support uh, financially, you can do that at Subscribestar or Locals or Patreon. Uh, we also have tomorrow coming up tomorrow. I've got a deprogrammed interview with Megan Murphy, who is the founder of Feminist Current uh, and currently hosts the the Same Drugs podcast. And I'm also going to be. I'm. I, I really like talking to her because she's someone who 
for years was known as this kind of feminist rabble rouser and she was a known uh, socialist and she's left the left like a lot of people have and so the interviews about that and then I'm going to be getting to to see her in person on on June 10th in Austin if you're in the Texas area we're going to be speaking it's going to be a panel of women and we agree on some things we disagree on some things um, it's going to be me Megan Murphy <clears throat> Posey Parker um, uh, Michelle Evans uh, Mary Lou Oh man, I'm sorry. I'm blanking her last name. Somebody in the chat help me out. Anyway, I'll put the link down below if you want to get tickets. If you're in the Texas area, uh, please come and support us because I've noticed that there are people now on Twitter who are uh, retweeting the event, people in Austin, and who are trying to shame the Austin Public Library for letting us do the event there. And uh, it'll be great if we have a good turnout of people and it, and it doesn't have to be homogenous. It's people of all different beliefs who are just coming here, good panel discussion. So that's June 10th. And then what's the last thing I was gonna say? Oh, oh, I did an interview for the knitters. I did an interview on politically incorrect knitters and it came out one day while I was working my gig job and I didn't get to uh, push it out online yet. But go check it out. I had fun hanging out with those ladies. They let me show my remedial knitting and did not laugh at it. And uh, we talked about a lot of other things. So uh, that's out now if you guys want to see it. And that's all. That's all the announcements. I'm done. What are your announcements? Uh, everything Carrie said. Woohoo! <laughs> Good. <laughs> you don't like chocolate. No. That's your announcement. It's gross. I am a white chocolate supremacist. This is true. For anyone who doesn't know Mystery Chris in real life, uh, he only likes white chocolate. Uh, oh, by the way, I, 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 you, so you gave me some white chocolate, and I've been putting it in scrambled eggs. Now, some people are saying this is gross, but it's not because it was on the internet. That's where I got what? the idea from. It's is not. It? Carrie, no. No, you're looking at me weird. No, it's, is it, it it's sweetness. It's just sugar. It's just like putting sugar. That's basically what you're putting in there. Why would you put sugar on eggs, though? Because the internet told me. <laughs> that white chocolate is really good. It is. Uh, yeah, I got it from uh, uh, from out in Hill Country. And they bring in all their, their cocoa beans from Venezuela. And they make a lot of the chocolate there. It's like uh, Ethel and Lucy back there. And that white chocolate has won awards for best white. So, language, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, I learned that you put white chocolate on your eggs. That's something we learned. Thanks, guys, for hanging out with us tonight. Uh, if you like the video, please hit like, leave a comment. It helps us with the algorithm. And thank you so much. We'll see you tomorrow for Deep Ground. Bye. Bye. We should go out with the fresh fresh prez of Bel Air. I'm just kidding. I can't do that.